Going to Micah chapter 1, and uh, as I said, Micah is pronouncing this very discouraging word upon the nation of Israel, and uh, it's, they deserve it. And uh, he's telling them about this soon coming judgment that they're going to be facing, and he's disheartened by what he has to say. It's very, very, very uh, stern word coming from the Lord, and he's the one speaking it. So you hear this in verse number one. He says, woe is me. Woe is me. I mean, and I think at this point, he realizes that people aren't listening to him. People could care less about what he's got to say. They could care less about the word of God. And he, and he realizes that nothing's going to change. There's not going to be a revival in the land. Now, actually, there was in the southern kingdom. So he did have an impact. But he's discouraged at this point. He says, woe is me, because I'm, I'm like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean vintage grapes. But when I go to... Uh, glean, there is no cluster to eat off the first ripe fruit, which my soul desires. And so the Lord speaking through, through uh, Micah says the same thing Micah's feeling, and that's that, uh, hey, the nation of Israel is at the point where they're, they're dead. There's nothing good coming forth from the nation. I was in Sunset the other day, and I was getting the house ready for the people that are buyers who have bought it and and uh, doing some things over there and I went and checked on my grapevine and I had and it's been there for I've had that grapevine I guess for five or six years and it's always produced a lot of grapes but last year it didn't produce many grapes this year I noticed we have one cluster of grapes coming from that grapevine so if I was there to take care of that grapevine I would either cut it down maybe cut it down and give it another year, or I would prune it back so bad it would wish it was cut down. And that's kind of the picture that we have here of the nation of Israel. I mean, things are so bad that, that God's going to cut them back to the stump, basically, because they're, they're not producing any fruit. And, and, and Micah realizes that they're not hearing his message. And so he is preaching against the nation of Israel, but guess what? Woe is me because I'm an Israelite. And what happens to Israel happens to me. I mean, I'm certainly no prophet, and, uh, but I, I can, my eyes, I can look at my eyes at what's going on in our nation, and it's a pretty bleak situation, uh, the condition, the moral condition of this country, and the fact that we aren't bearing any fruit uh, for God. And so, you know, you could get up here and you could say, woe to America. But when you say woe to America, you're, you know, it's pretty discouraging because you're saying woe to yourself because we're Americans. And so we hope there's a revival. Personally, you know, I used to think I, I was taught all the way through seminary there was going to be a revival. I studied the great revivals that were come, had come upon this land. But I kind of wonder if we were past a revival. I hate to sound that discouraging, but, but hopefully there will be a revival in the United States of America. But what's it going to take, you know, to get this nation to turn when you got some maniac over there firing missiles that, he, where, that he's, he's making, preparing to strike the United States? People better wake up. We get a nuclear bomb hit this nation, we're going to see some terrible, terrible things. And so, so it looked pretty bleak out there. Now, 
like Micah, I have a hope and we'll see his hope here in a minute because my hope is not in the United States of America. My hope is in the Lord. And, and so, but even at that, I'm an American, you know, I'm a patriot. And I hate to see what's happened to our country. And so woe to America, woe to me. And now he goes back to painting this picture of Israel and why they're so fruitless and why they're so bad. Look at verse number two. It says, the faithful man has perished from the earth. And, and no, nobody's left. There's none righteous. No, not one. The faithful man. What's he mean by a faithful man? The man who's faithful unto the Lord. The man who gives a flip about the things of the Lord. The man or woman who gives a flip. Really gives a flip about the things of the Lord. They're gone. You can't find them anywhere. I mean, there was a remnant there. and We're going to look at that in a second. But for the most part, nobody cares anymore. And therefore, there is no one upright among the men. They lie in wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net. Verse number three, that they may successfully do evil with both hands. You know, some people do evil with their left hand and do good with their right hand. But he, the, the Israel's reached the point where they do evil with both hands. The prince, is, the prince asks for gifts. I mean, he, he doesn't do what he does for... for uh, in service to his nation, he does it for money. The judge seeks a bribe. And the great man utters his evil desire, so they scheme together. In other words, they don't serve anybody but themselves. They're not serving the Lord. They're not faithful to the Lord. This was a theocracy at one time, and the king should have been a godly king. The princes should have been godly people. The judges should have been godly people. The priests should have been godly people. But they're way past that. They're in an age of apostasy, and, and things are really bad. The best of them, he says in verse number four, is like a briar. Now, briar's not a good thing, is it? It hurts when you get a briar stuck in your leg. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge, a rose bush. Stick your hand in a rose bush and see how that feels. That's the way that, that's the, way that the people were in that day. They don't do any good. They're like briars and thorns. All they do is cause hurt and pain. And harm. Your watchman and your punishment comes. I mean, at this point, they had all sorts of prophets. I mean, some really great prophets speaking to them. The watchmen were there. They were, they were saying the time has come. And, and uh, the, the punishment was on the horizon. And, and yet, here's their problem. They're just like the United States today. They call good evil and evil good. And when you do that, you don't get this sense that judgment's coming because the things that you see happen, you see a gay pride parade or you see, a, you know, you see uh, movies that, are, that are, should be in the dumpster. You see these kind of things in the media. And, and uh, you, know, you should say, wow, this is really bad, but they don't even see it as bad anymore. So they don't think judgment is coming. All this stuff is okay. And so when their judgment comes, now shall there be their perplexity. They'll be perplexed at why they're being judged. I mean, how could God do this to us? We're good people. How could God do this? Because they've lost the standard of good. They've lost all relevance to reality. I was listening to John MacArthur the other day, and again, I'm not picking on homosexuals, but... He was in a question and answer session, and I'm not a great fan of John MacArthur either, but, I, but what he said was really profound. Somebody asked him, they said, 
and he's pretty tough too. Somebody asked him, they said, uh, he said, my uh, sister, how do I show love to her because she's transgender? And he said, you can't show love to her. You can't show the love of God to her. That's the love you want to show to her because she's lost all con uh, perception of reality. She's crossed a line where, well, I mean, it was harsh what he was saying, but it was really true. She's crossed a line where, where there's no hope for her because she, she, she thinks what she does is okay and she's being told that it's okay. In fact, it's being, it's being promoted as a good thing, actually, a bold thing to do, a, a, something you should be proud of. And when you lose sight of reality like that and you lose sight of your conscience is seared to that point, then, you know, you can't show her the love of God. She, that was her question, how do I show the love of God to this, my transgender sister? And so I was like, whoa, man, I would never be that harsh. But there was a lot of truth in what he said. Verse number five, he says, do not trust in a friend. That's just terrible when you can't trust a friend. You can't trust your own husband. We're praying for somebody a while ago who, whose husband fed her antifreeze for years to try to kill her. And then had a bomb ready to kill her. Who do you trust? He says, you do not trust a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. You're living in an evil world. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. You can't even trust your wife. Your, your son, dis, for son dishonors father, daughter rises against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Well, that's natural there, but that's always been the case. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Now that's not, you know, we haven't quite, we're not quite there in the United States today. There is a remnant where that's not going on. And I think maybe in Israel there was too in that day. He's speaking about the vast majority of the people. But Mike is saying, look, there's nobody you can trust. We're living in the most terrible of times. And look at verse number seven. Therefore, I will look to the Lord. So what he says Micah knows somebody he can trust. In bad times, there is somebody you can trust. And he knows who that is. It says, therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. No matter how difficult things got, get, they can't get more difficult than they were in Micah's day. Because judge, God judged that nation and virtually wiped it out because of their sin. And Micah says, look, I've got someone I can trust. Therefore, I can't trust anybody else. I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me. Don't weep for me. Don't cry over me, Micah says, my enemy. Because when I fall, God will lift me back up. I will arise. When, I, when things seem really dark and I'm sitting in darkness and the world seems like it's just go, about to go totally black, then the Lord will be a light to me. You know, when things are the darkest, that's when God's light shines the most. And so, so the worst things get, Micah says, hey, I'm all right, because if you knock me down, I'm going to get back up. The Lord's going to get me back up. And if things get really dark, then, then, then I'm all right because I'm saved. And then he gives the plan of salvation, the Old Testament plan of salvation. Listen to, listen to it in verse number nine. He said, 
He says, I will bear. Now, he's speaking of himself and he's speaking of the nation here. He says, I will bear indignation of the Lord. I'll bear his wrath because I deserve it. Because I've sinned. The nation's sinned. I've sinned against the Lord. We've all sinned against the Lord. Now, if Mike had said, you know, I'm going to look to the Lord, a God of my salvation. Don't rejoice over me. I'm not going to fall. When darkness comes, the Lord will be my light because I'm a good person. He would have been in trouble. But he says, look, I'm, I'm going to bear some of this wrath. We're all going to bear some of this wrath. I've sinned against him, but he pleads my case. He pleads my case and he executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light. He, I will see his righteousness. In other words, woe is me, Micah says in verse number one. The wrath of God is coming and I've sinned against him, but he pleads my case. He executes justice for me. In other words, the just becomes the justifier. That's exactly what Paul says over in Romans chapter three. He takes up our case and he pleads our case for us. And it's the blood of Christ that saves us. The wrath, God still exercises his wrath, but who does he exercise it on? He exercises it on the Lord himself, on Jesus Christ. And so he pleads my case. And so he's talking here about his personal redemption, but he's also talking about the redemption of Israel. At some point, God is going to, be the justifier for the people of Israel. He's going to justify Israel. Their sin is great, but God will restore Israel. And he'll restore Israel through his son, the same way he restores us. Again, I keep heading back to that passage in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, where it says, in the last days when Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives, I will pour out my spirit upon the people, the Lord says, and they will look upon the one whom they've pierced. They won't just look on him. They will realize that he did die for their sins because they're going to see him as God. They're going to realize that God died for their sins and they will mourn as a mother mourns for the loss of her firstborn child. And so redemption's coming to Israel too. And at that point, they will see their righteousness. In other words, he will bring me forth to the light. I will see his righteousness. And that day they will see his righteousness. At the very end of Isaiah, there's, there's a name for God given there. Jehovah to sit canoe. Jehovah is my righteousness. One day, if you don't see that now, well, you're not saved if you don't see that now. But we see that now as looking through a dim glass. One day when we see the Lord we're going to really see that he's our righteousness and what a deal we got. Micah knows the deal and he prophesies about that deal. Then in verse number 10, then she who is my enemy will see. Now he's going back, I think, talking about Israel. She who is my enemy will see and the shame will cover her who said to me, where's the Lord your God? When, when these Assyrians came down and these Babylonians came down, they said, hey, yeah, what about Jehovah God, your God? Where's he at now? My eyes will see her. One, one day the Lord's going to restore Israel. And in the enemy, in, uh, in that day, 
the enemies of Israel uh, will know that the Lord never truly deserted his people. He never will truly desert his people. Now, but for now, look at the last part of verse 10, back to the discouraging message. For now she will be trampled down like mud in the streets. That's pretty bad. But there's going to come a day when the Israelites will return into the land. Actually, they're going to, that day in our future, and there was a day in Micah's future, two returns to the land in Micah's future. So he's speaking here of both returns. The return, uh, if you remember, uh, when Cyrus made his decree and Nehemiah and Ezra came back into the land, they came back with about 35,000 Israelites, nothing like it had been there before. And now he's going to paint a picture of that return right here in these next few verses. Listen to what he says in verse 11. He says, in, in the day when your walls are to be built, in that day the decree shall go forth, go far and wide. And in that day they shall come to you from Assyria and the fortified cities where they've been taken captive. From the fortresses to the river, from the sea to sea, and mountain to mountain, yet the land shall be desolate. Even after the return, the land will still seem to be desolate because so many people were killed in that judgment on the nation, that Babylonian judgment and the Assyrian judgment. And then in 70 AD, when Titus judged the Israelites, so many Israelites were killed. And so it's, it's gonna, the land's going to seem desolate because of those who dwell in it and the fruit of their, they're paid for the fruit of their deeds. And so uh, he's referring to this regathering of the Israel, Israel in the days of Cyrus, but he's also referring to the regathering of Israel in the last days. What, what we're seeing the beginnings of right now, it's not over yet. Uh, when the Lord reigns in Jerusalem, we'll t we talked about this earlier in an earlier chapter, an earlier study, everybody's going to be there because the king of kings will be on his throne. And I, I said, everybody's not going to be there. Everybody's going to want to be there. And all of Israel's going to want to be there. And all of Israel's going to be saved. And all of Israel is going to be there. And then he speaks of the great shepherd in verse number 14. He says, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage. That's, that's Israel who dwell in solitude who dwell solitarily in a woodland in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and in Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I, I, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. So God is going to tend to that vine. Uh, Micah described the vine as not having any fruit. Well, in that day, the shepherd is going to take control of his flock and he's going to take care of, of his garden. Carmel, by the way, means the garden of God. And I don't know so much as if he's talking about a specific location here as, as, as he's talking about the whole nation, which will be his garden. And he will restore Israel to her past glory and the Israelites will see wonders like they've never seen before. Wonders greater than when he took them out of the land of Egypt. Then in verse number 16, it says, The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall put their hand, the, I'm sorry, the nations, plural, shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall put their hand over their mouth. Their ears shall be death. I mean, he's speaking of the nations here of, who, for over history, 
have hated the Jews. And when this day comes and they really see that Jehovah God is their God, that Jesus is their God, they're going to be ashamed. And no more will they talk bad about the Jews. They'll put their hands over their mouth before they speak bad about the Jews because that probably will be a death sentence if they do. And they'll cover their ears when somebody else wants to talk bad about the Jews so they won't hear anything bad about the Jews. Verse number 17, they shall lick the dust like a serpent. In other words, they will bow down to the Jews. They shall crawl from their holes like snakes of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of you, the Lord. And you could say maybe Israel there. God's going to make Israel the greatest nation on this earth during the millennium. And people will fear the Israelites, not because of their military, not because of their economy, but because of their God. Because the Lord God of this universe will be on his throne in Israel. And he's going to pour out his spirit on those people and they're going to be saved. And they will be forgiven. Look at verse 18. Who is a God like you? There was that theme of Micah. Who is a God like you? Right in his, embedded in his very name. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all of our sins into the depths Look at that. Into the depths of the, how many of the sins? All of our sins into the depths of the sea. Same thing that happens to a Christian is going to happen to the Israelites. Israel fell because of her sin. We fall because of our sin. The wages of sin is what? Death. Death of everything. Death of life. Death of peace. Death of joy, death of hope. You see, people who don't know the Lord, we were talking about some people today that we feel for, that we are close to us, but they don't know the Lord and they're bitter and they're, you can just tell they don't have any hope. I mean, sin causes that. And if you don't do something with that sin, your hope's going to die because all our hope is in the Lord. God laid a plan before the foundation of the world. Isn't that great? To subdue our iniquities. To defeat the powers and principalities of this world. And what was that plan? It was the gospel. Jesus would come to this earth as a little babe in Bethlehem and he would grow up and he would die on a cross for our sins so that we might have the righteousness of God. And that means that's what the picture he paints of heaven, the righteousness of God, is a picture of our sins being cast into the depths of the sea. Another place as far as the east is from the west. They're gone. All our sins are gone. Why did God come up with such a plan? Well, he tells us in this verse because of, he delights in mercy. Because he has great compassion on us. And 
So he offers this plan of salvation to anyone who would believe. Where did the, where did the plan of salvation begin? It began back in Bethlehem? No. Well, it really began before the foundation of the world. But when do we first see it in the Bible? We see it first in the Bible with Abraham. Abraham believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So how do we get that righteousness? By faith. And someday Israel's going to do what their father, forefathers did. And they're going to believe too. And they're going to have that righteousness. Look at verse 20, the last verse. You will give truth, the truth of the gospel, which is salvation by faith through Jesus Christ, to Jacob to the nation of Israel and to Abraham and to the descendants of Jacob and Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from the day, days of old. God promised salvation to the very first fathers of Israel. Salvation by faith they didn't know quite in what, but faith in God, faith in the sacrificial system, faith in the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When he gave Abraham that first promise, what did he ask Abraham to do? One thing, what did he have to do? All he had to do was believe, believe enough to pack up and leave his homeland and go into the promised land where God wanted him to go. Let me read you that promise in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. You, you can turn there if you want to, or Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, or I'm going to read it to you either way, so that's up to you. He says in... Make sure I got the right verses here. Chapter 12. And I haven't been back this way in a long time. Yeah. Verse number one. Now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Now watch what he says. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, so he's talking about from your seed, in you, the Messiah is going to come forth and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God gave this covenant of salvation through, it, through Abraham to the nation of Israel and really to us. And it's, a physical covenant for the nation of Israel and it's a spiritual covenant for us and the nation of Israel. And you got to, that's, that's important to see because that rules out this idea of covenant theology. First of all, it is a physical covenant. They were promised the land. Go with me over to Psalms chapter 105. Look at verse number nine. The covenant which he made with Abraham 
and his oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statue to Israel is how long of a covenant? An everlasting covenant saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan. How long was that covenant for? Who made that covenant? What did he ask in return? Just faith. That is an everlasting covenant. So those people that will tell you that the Jews don't belong in that land, that it's not their land, that they lost all rights to that land uh, when they rejected Christ, they are preaching heresy. And there's a big portion of Christendom that preaches that heresy. So be careful with that. That is an everlasting covenant. And let me remind you what he said back in chapter 12 of Genesis. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. So when you say Israel has no business back in that land, you are cursing Israel. And I just don't think you're putting yourself in a very good position. So watch out for those people. But it's also a spiritual covenant. Remember what Paul said over in Romans. Go with me over to Romans for a minute. And look in chapter number 11. I've got to find it here. Go down to verse number 26. Romans chapter 11, verse number 26. Look what he says there. And so all Israel would be, will be saved. All of Israel. Now all of Israel means all of Israel. I'm not sure what it means actually. Were the, were the Israelites who perished in the wilderness saved? I don't think so. Was Saul saved? I don't think so. There were a lot of Israelites who weren't saved. But in those last days when Jesus returns, what he's saying is, all of that nation is going to be saved because look at he describes that coming there and he quotes from Isaiah and he says the deliverer will come out of Zion out of heavenly Zion and he will turn away the ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them I will take away their sins boy be fortunate being an Israelite in the day when the Lord comes back because you will be saved what happens to the rest of them that's up to the Lord Right now, if they didn't, don't know Christ, they're in Hades. Now, I, I'm not one of these people who believe that in universalism that everybody's going to get saved. But all of Israel will be saved in that day. Because God's promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Israel are irrevocable. So Israel has a great hope. You and I have a great hope. Thank goodness those promises are unconditional. Based solely on his work and his mercy and his compassion and simply our faith. So what Mike is saying right here in this little book, and the whole message is this. Who is like God to forgive our sins? Salvation will come to the Israelites just as it has come to the church. That's the message of Micah. Next week we'll take a look at Nahum. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for 
the hope we have in Christ. And Lord, we haven't done anything to earn it. We have that hope because you're great in compassion and you're great in mercy, Lord. Thank you for your mercy that you've shown on each of us in this room. Lord, there's a world of lost sinners out there that we just, Lord, we beg you. We, we know that choice is involved in this matter and people have gone off the deep end and into immorality, Lord, but there's no pit so deep that you can't pull them out. And so, Lord, we just ask for, for your great salvation, your great plan of salvation to reach multitudes in this country before it's too late. Lord, we know you're coming soon. We see you're coming on the horizon right now as we, as we pray. We know time is short. So, Lord, help us to be your witnesses. Help us to serve you as best we can until you do return. We just thank you for your goodness. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.